You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Todd Wicks. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, December 21st. 2021. Later in the program, we have A Few Minutes with the Mayor, a bi-weekly segment where WFHB Assistant News Director Noel Herhusky Schneider asks Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton questions on community issues. More in the bottom half of tonight's show. Also coming up in the next half hour, members of the Ellettsville Town Council explain changes they want to make to their 2022 budget. That's coming up next in your daily headlines. At the Ellettsville Town Council meeting on December 13th, Town Manager Mike Farmer explained salary changes necessary for the 2022 budget. He said the wage survey didn't account for the growth of the planning department's duties. A few months ago, we lost our MS4 operator. I've been looking for someone to take over those duties, and we was trying to decide which employee and what employees we had where we could incorporate it with the existing employees' duties. Um, We had an MS4 operator. He worked part-time on a weekly basis for half a day, and he retired, and we had $5,000 out of stormwater to pay him. Um, The person we had uh, was... A fine employee, and um, as far as when he worked, it worked well. But the fact that rain events and work schedules and developments um, or events that occurred because of developing properties, um, one day a week, the schedule was never when we actually needed the MS4 operator. It's a part-time job to be sure currently. And um, we needed the flexibility that incorporating that job with one of our employees that were there 40 hours a week seemed to be the answer. Council member Dan Swafford cautioned that diverging from the wage survey could spark other wage changes. Farmer replied, saying that the wage survey didn't account for the assistant planner filling the position of multiple assistants. I didn't think it was a good idea to do the wage study, and I was wrong. Um, It was a good idea, and it brought to our attention um, uh, a third, an outside view of what we do, and it and it was done with professionals uh, doing the work and. Um, I think it was a terrific idea, and, and, and it changed the wages of a lot of our employees, and so it was very helpful, but I do not think that um, they got everything 100% correct, and considering that um, I understand and appreciate the wage study and the fact that I am involved day-to-day with the staffing of the town, 
Um, I think they missed the fact that our assistant planner um, was in the same position as several other of our assistants. And um, it's really came to light um, uh, the responsibilities and the duties and the importance of the job. And, and it's par with the rest of those positions. And in fact, with um, uh, the development of the town and as it is, um, you know, the planning department has went from a few years ago, it was considered a junior department to it's the tip of the spear of what we are doing in Ellisville currently as we grow. Council member Scott Oldham supported changing the salary and said that in the future they need to make budget changes based on the duties rather than the person or the position. I still remain unimpressed with the job evaluation for a variety of different reasons, um, amongst which is, quite frankly, the job evaluation is now three years old. The economy is significantly different than it was then. Um, the pressure to hire and find good quality people, I don't want to say didn't exist then, but it wasn't at the degree that it is now. Um, there is currently a bidding war going on in a variety of different professions um, that, quite frankly, is, is boggling my mind. I, I, I never thought we'd see some of the increases across the board in different professions that we're seeing and still people not taking the job. With that said, I, I, the one thing I want to interject here is whatever we do or don't do, I, I do want, and again, in all fairness, I, I want this whole argument or this whole discussion every year to stop. Let's find something because that is not fair to this employee because every year it comes down to, it seems this whole discussion revolves around one employee and that's got to stop. So whatever we need to do now to, to elevate this person or to come to an understanding that this is where that person needs to be and we move forward from there. But for the last three or four years, every year, it's been the conversation about this one specific employee out of all of our employees. And that's just not fair to them to, to have to be singled out. So if we need to go higher, we need to go even higher to make sure we're getting what we're paying for, because Dan, you may bring up a very good point. It's the duties that should should make a difference. Um, and Kevin, you bring up a good point. There's a lot more duties than there was before. And the point that I'm making, I think, is still valid, that there's competition out there for quality employees. And there's municipalities who are willing to pay hand over fist to get good quality employees. And we've got them. Let's make sure we're keeping them. There was a discussion between council members afterward, and they decided to make an official decision at the next town council meeting on December 27th. On December 15th of the Monroe County Public Library Board of Trustees meeting, General Manager of Community Access Television, Michael White, gave an update on the CATS agreements with surrounding towns and businesses. He shared that for the town of Ellettsville, Monroe County, and the city of Bloomington, the agreement was unchanged except for a 1% increase in price for their services. He shared that for the town of Ellettsville, Monroe County, and the city of Bloomington, the agreement was unchanged except for a 1% increase in price for their services that CATS provides to them. He also shared that CATS would increase their annual payment to WFHB for their participation by $2,000 for the first time in three years. CATS Assistant Manager Martin O'Neill presented a community access television update on government meeting coverage over the years. 
So we will come back to 2016. We were doing roughly about 430 uh, government programs a year. Ended up in 2021 with 665, so almost 700 a year. So you know, we in the past five years, we it's gone up by 200 and over 230 programs a year, just on the uh, government side. So we've been <laughs> we've been actually doing a lot. He said that the Zoom meetings have made government meetings more accessible, and residents have gotten accustomed to receiving the increased coverage. Now it's time for A Few Minutes with the Mayor, a bi-weekly segment where WFHB Assistant News Director Noel Herhusky-Schneider asks Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton questions on community issues. In today's segment, we ask Mayor Hamilton about COVID-19 in Bloomington, the opening of the John Waldron Arts Center, and how the city is preparing to address people experiencing homelessness over the winter months, and how residents can get involved with city boards and commissions. All that and more in today's A Few Minutes with the Mayor. Welcome back to Minutes with the Mayor, where we ask your questions and questions we have about what's going on around town. We just canceled our our families coming to town. We just canceled that last night. We had a big Zoom call to decide from people of my wife's side family were coming from Florida, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Massachusetts, Wisconsin. We just all and we just canceled it. So that was hard, but the right thing. That is hard. That like yeah. that gives me that reminds me of yeah, spring 2020 when I yeah. canceled spring break plans and Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. It's just it's just too much going on right now. COVID. Yeah. Well, that brings us to question number 1. With, you know, Omicron and rising case levels, how is Bloomington trying to mitigate all of this? And I know Switchyard Park is having a testing and vaccine clinic. Can you just update us on rising cases and what people can and should do before they go home and or potentially don't? We are seeing very serious uh, rise of cases, and of course, the predictions of Omicron coming uh, with a with a flurry. Um, it's kind of a movie we've seen before, from the first uh, arrival of COVID to the Delta variant, uh, and it's very concerning. Um, we are locally continuing to meet regularly and work to identify how do we keep our community safe. Well. Indiana is one of the less safe states. Uh, our community is one of the safer places in Indiana. We're going to continue to do all we can to make that the case. Um, actually, Wednesday this week, we've invited all of our state representatives and senators to meet with the group of us that meet every Wednesday afternoon to 
identify uh, status and, and recommendations to try to make sure they hear from us how serious this is and how serious we take it and ask the legislature to, you know, not not mess up the ability of local governments and local providers, health providers and others to work together to protect our public, uh, which we're concerned about. Um, yes, you mentioned at Switchyard Park in the pavilion uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday this week is an eight-hour shift each day, noon to eight, uh, to do vaccinations and boosters and testing. And um, anybody who wants, please, you can sign up on the state website or show up uh, in person. I know there were some lines there because a lot of people are interested, but we know how important the vaccines are and the boosters. Uh, uh, Omicron virus, uh, we, we know how important those are to protect us. We know our hospital actually has ha- has more patients, uh, COVID patients in the hospital now than ever, which, as Brian Shockney said, is, is just a terribly surprising and distressing news uh, that a year after the vaccines are here, we have more people in the hospital. So, there's a lot of work to do, but there's a lot of people working very hard to try to take the right steps. I really like that the clinic is you're able to just walk up because I know for me personally, I'm like, oh, yes, before I go and see my family, I should get tested. But the initiation of just I can hear Penny Cottle say rshot.in.gov like 10 million times. But <laughs> just knowing if I go to this place at this time, I can walk up, maybe wait in a line and I think that's sometimes lowers the barrier for me. I think it's really good, uh, and I hope over the next few weeks, I know the federal government is looking at this too, that we can continue to expand the opportunities for testing, uh, make it easier, make it cheaper, hopefully free, uh, as well as continuing the opportunity to get free vaccines and boosters. Uh, that's just so important. We have a lot of people who are who are vaccinated and boosted, uh, and that's terrific because that's what's keeping most of us safe. As the governor said, we are having a surge of unvaccinated. It's a pandemic of unvaccinated right now. Our hospitals are getting inundated with with largely unvaccinated people. And I don't know if you saw, I think there was some national news that was shared. Uh, Penny Cottle may have shared this too. National news that said without a vaccine, we would have lost 1.1 million more Americans to death. Uh, and 10 million hospitalizations. Uh, so it is so important to save lives and protect our health care system. I hope people will reconsider if they haven't yet uh, and get that vaccine. Omicron's coming and it's going to be more threatening and way more virulent. So it, they become more and more important. Mm-hmm. I just got my booster this Friday. Good for you, Noel. Thank you. Thank you. My arm was only sore for two days. I know it affects everyone differently, but I didn't. I got aches and pains like when I first got the second dose of Pfizer, but I didn't feel anything for my booster. Good. So Yeah, I had a booster several weeks ago and I similarly had just sore arm and maybe an hour or two of kind of feeling a little tired, but you know, heck, that can be regular life too. I'm not sure. So it was, it's definitely the right thing to do. So next up, I was wondering, I have a lot of questions about the Waldron opening up. I know that the opening ceremony is January 7th, I believe. And I'm wondering, what can residents expect with the Waldron Center? Like, can you just walk in there and take an art class? Or just, you know, or do you, how do we expect that space to be used on like a daily basis? 
We do plan to reopen the Waldron that first week of January with an event on the 7th of January. I will I will note that the details of that event are going to be contingent on how we're doing with the virus and spread, community spread, et cetera, but, mm-hmm. but we're planning something on the 7th of January. And then uh, the city will be operating the Waldron for the first six months of 2022. And um, mostly, is, I believe, you'll be seeing performances, dramatic performances from various uh, groups locally that want to use that space, as well as some displays uh, in the in the gallery spaces. I'm not aware of classes at this point, whether that will happen or not. Um, just stay tuned on that. But mo- much of that was done by Ivy Tech, I think, and since they've left uh, the facility, uh, that's still kind of to be determined as far as I know. But we'll share that information as soon as we can. Uh, but for the first six months, it will certainly be um, a host to to uh, plays and, and dramas and other things uh, from from local companies that want to use it and uh, for some visual arts that will use the uh, gallery space there. Cool. I'm excited about it. I really am. It's a beautiful building. It just looks lovely. And I've just been seeing the windows used to be all boarded up. And it's really cool to see it come back to life. The uh, there has been a lot of investment, uh, as you noted, to replace old windows and fix the uh, roof and uh, tuck pointing and actually uh, update and upgrade the heating and ventilation system so that it meets actors' equity standards so that uh, all of us uh, attending and those performing can be confident that the that the air circulation is healthy in these days. So there's a lot of uh, good investment going on to restore that building to its uh, splendor. And what did that building used to be? Was it? It says City Hall on the side. Yeah, originally it was City Hall, uh, indeed, uh, when it was first built. And it had a fire station right next to it, hence the fire bay that you know well. Sitting in it right now. Yeah, and uh, it served that for for a long purpose. And then uh, for a number of decades, uh, operated as an art center, uh, but has had a few different permutations. And we'll, we still don't know long-term what it will be, uh, but we know in the short term, at least for several years, we're going to re- reopen it as an art center. But one of the things we're looking at is kind of long-term for the community. Is that the best uh, use of that building or there, or there options for a purpose-built art center, performance center, or other approaches? And we're going to be digging into that. But, um, uh, you know, it's a beautiful old building and it served a lot of purposes in the past. And we'll see what it's going to do going forward, too. Last year, around this time, January 14th, people experiencing homelessness at Seminary Square were kicked out because it was cold and the city wanted to move them to the homeless shelters, but some people didn't want to go to the homeless shelters with COVID, and um, it was a it was a pretty big point of contention. The town Hall voted that they should be able to stay even though it was after hours, and I, you know, not to rehash it, but I would like to know, do you guys have any plans in place for this year to ensure that citizens experiencing homelessness are treated with respect and that there's enough space for them and the shelters and what's going on with that? Well, thanks for asking. Um, you know, I think our community makes very clear, and we actually see it even in city surveys that we do, that we all want to see better options for people. Um, I think housing is a right. 
It's a, it's a civil right, and it ought to be uh, uh, provided to all of us. Uh, this is both a local and a national and a state issue to, to work on. But we certainly, I know in our community, we're full of people, institutions, governments, nonprofits, and individuals who work very hard to try to make sure everybody has an opportunity um, to have a place to live, a safe place to live, and, and of course then from there build the life that they want to live. And it's complicated, and we continue to work very closely. There's millions of dollars that have been committed this year that that are now available that were not available last year in the same way with the American Rescue Plan Act. And we have a really hard-working group called Housing Security Group that has come together from funders, government and nonprofits, to providers, uh, entities that are provide housing and support that is very focused on how do we improve uh, opportunity for people, make homelessness uh, rare and brief and non-repeating as kind of three of the touchstones for that. So there's a lot of attention on that, uh, including, yes, emergency shelters, which are which are important, but also more fundamentally to try to make sure we have housing first, a housing first approach, which means you know, a lot of people are struggling with lots of issues from employment and income to mental health or substance use disorder to others to, to say the first thing you need is housing. So that's really a focus of the community. Uh, it's, it, it is a big emphasis of this administration, my administration, and our partners around the city. So every every day there are people working very closely with folks to try to make sure they can get to safe places. There are numerous emergency shelters, including some with um, uh, isolation opportunities for those who have COVID and need to. So this is a big issue for all of us, and we're working really hard on it. I saw that on a lot of commissions and boards, there are vacancies, and it is time for those vacancies to be filled, and people can apply to be a part of the Bloomington Ports and Commissions. And I was wondering if you could, you know, just outline for people who are maybe interested how they can apply and if there's a deadline or any requirements they need to meet? You know, the city has about three dozen or more boards and commissions, and they're a wonderful way to get involved in the work of the city. Um, the basic checkpoint is get online. Uh, you can go to the city uh, website and look under boards and commissions, and you can find openings. They're typically appointed by city council or by the mayor. They range from places that require or encourage expertise like historic preservation or utility service board or public safety board or things like that to others that are really broad of uh, broad interest uh, that may you know if you're interested in sustainability or the environment or uh, the families or African American males or um, all kinds of other opportunities you can check that out um, we welcome people to apply which you can do online most of the boards require you to be a city resident. There's a handful that you don't have to be a city resident on, uh, but uh, any city resident can look at any of those three dozen boards and find something they're interested in and apply. We have a lot of people who started as a board member and ended up on city council uh, or or mayor. You know, I I started as a in the sustainability commission, and um, uh, so it's a great way to get involved in city government too. And there's no deadline for that. Most of them have uh, a kind of a rolling uh, 
deadline. There are a number of board seats that come open at the end of this year or at the end of January, but some of them open up any time. So you should just, this is a good time to look, but it's not the only time to look. You can keep keep watching uh, year-round. A lot of people don't know that they can apply for those. And it's very, yeah, it is a good way. I have to watch all the meetings. I think it's a really good way to get involved. If you have any questions, send us an email at wfhb.org or give us a call. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Support for WFHB News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Noel Herhusky Schneider. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Kate Young. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. And stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program that explores our solar system and beyond, coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program that explores our solar system and beyond. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. And that's a wrap. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at wfhb.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 